You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to Drinks with Tony. Today, my guest is Tim McLaughlin. He's the author of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, Stories and Essays. We talk New York City in the 1980s and the 1990s, how to navigate high crime neighborhoods, how one writing workshop at the YMCA shifted Tim's life to become a writer, and portions of the show are interrupted by a critical gaggle of geese. Speaking of writing workshops, I teach a free creative writing workshop through the Los Angeles Public Library, which is still available on Zoom for a very short time because we're going back in person. For the next couple months, possibly, you can join from anywhere. Email me at duchesne at gmail.com and I can send you the Zoom link for the next workshop, which is on May 11th at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And this week's sponsor of Drinks with Tony is Existential Dread. Just think about it. We're all going to die one day. Drinks with Tony, sponsored by Existential Dread. Hi, I'm Tim McLaughlin, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Tim McLaughlin. He's the author of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, Stories and Essays. Tim, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Tony. How are you? Thanks for uh, having me. It's fun and so excited to have you. Your experiences as a, can I say cop? Is that a bad word to say to a retired? Not, not with me. Okay. Um, I, I Technically, I was a peace officer working in the criminal justice system. Yeah. Okay. And, so and uh, go ahead. It's a lot like it's a lot like being a cop, except that you work indoors and uh, you have weekends off. Oh, is that? How, oh, cool. Oh, that's way better than being a cop. Did you? But you still went through the academy and stuff to get to that spot. Yes, there was there was a court officer academy. Yes. All right. Did you have to do the physical like? Did you have to be oh, good yeah. physically? Yeah. Yeah. There was a physical, there was, um, you know, a psychological, which I slipped through. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, there, there were um, definitely all those aspects to it. And then after you were completed probation, you had to go back to firearms training. Yeah. What's, um, do you think you can, do you think you can do the physical and the psychological now if they threw you back in it? Um, how can I put this delicately? Hell no. <laughs> I know I, I sometimes I kind of want to just try it to, to just see how bad I would fail <laughs> just, just to be like yeah, I get that <laughs> it'd be like you know because I, I know law enforcement is like they, they need to hire they they're looking for people to hire right now it's not an easy um I, you know what I mean all of that stuff that I'm not gonna you know talk about uh my opinion on too much but they're having a hard time getting new recruits and and part of me wants to go and i know even though they're having a hard time getting new recruits i know they would say i'm sorry mr duchene but we want we don't want you anywhere near any of our other officers <laughs> <laughs> um well i don't know about that but uh yeah it, it's uh it it was not 
you know, it certainly was not a rigorous job when I started because, as I say, it, it's our job was in when I worked in uniform was pretty much security for the courthouse and also running prisoners from the correction units to the court units and back again for their appearances. But on the other hand, it was in the early 1980s in New York City, so it was kind of the Wild West out there. Yeah, it's and that's what's so um, that's what's so great to bring those stories to now because I because people people think you know Giuliani's New York right uh, where you go uh, Times Square I'm like where's the peep shows where's the peep shows you know oh, and yeah. and there's kids with baby strollers all over the place and I'm like I want to see a naked woman <laughs> I want my sleeves back goddammit. it that's all right. <laughs> um, yeah no it, you know it's kind of funny because people who were not here back then have no sense of what the vibe of the city was like at that period of time and when when for example the homicide rate in new york goes from 250 murders a year to 400 any one of them is a tragedy obviously any one of them you know is heartbreaking for the person who died in their family but as a statistic it's going from 250 to 400. When I was 17 years old, it was 1,600 a year. So it, it, there is no hint of the old city in, in New York. However bad people think it has gotten now, it is still largely, you know, disnified and gentrified. And, 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 like, and what are your feelings about that? Because I mean, I'm from San Francisco, so I have very, and I grew up in the eighties and nineties and then. And so but, yeah, well, that's what are a your, very similar experience. Yeah. It's, uh, what, what are your feelings about, you know, seeing it now and, and the changes? I, I think I don't have a sense of where we're going to go from here because everyone says there has to be a breaking point, and I guess there does. But I, I guess I just don't understand how people – are surviving today, living in, in New York City or in San Francisco, in any of these super hot urban environments. Um, I was raised by my father who worked for the Transit Authority. And, you know, my mom worked in a bank and they were able to buy a house and send me to college. Yeah. Um, today, if you work for the Transit Authority, you have to sleep in your mom's basement. You know, there is, there is no such thing as save your money and buy a house when a house is a million six. Yeah. Um, I don't know what people are going to do. And the the other thing that troubles me is that I think it sort of keeps the creative class out of these towns because they can't afford to roll in, you know, as bad as New York was in the bad old days. um, It meant there were plenty of cheap places to live and we got lots of artists. Yeah, That's, I mean, I live in Los Angeles now, which is actually, an easier place to live than San Francisco. If you want to be creative. Um, I mean, I've set myself, you know, it's not like I'm in the Hills with the pool, Los Angeles. I'm in the flats in the studio apartment, Los Angeles, but at the same time, I have access to a lot of artists, artistic and creative juices around me that I'm lucky to have where, you know, in San Francisco, I can't move out to San back to San Francisco. I'm priced out. I'm completely priced out. Um, And it's, uh, I don't know how people do it. And, and even the um, <clears throat> getting into the nuts and bolts of it, which is, you know, some of what I write about, 
when you get the people that are not the creative class, when you get the people that are propping up the infrastructure of the cities, they can't afford to live in the cities anymore. So the guys that are driving further and further every day to get to work are the cops and firemen, sanitation workers. Um, You know, just talking to guys on the street, I talk to the doormen in these fancy buildings. They all live in New Jersey. So the, you know, these, these poor bastards who were making their 15, 16, $17 an hour are coming in on two buses in a subway. Which I mean, and that is what keeps an infrastructure of a city like New York together. You lose sanitation, you lose the cops, you lose the firemen who are finally like, you know what? I give up. I can't do this. I'm going to go to Poughkeepsie because they got a gig right. up there. Right. They have a small fire department. I'll do just fine. Yeah. Yeah. That is a, a, I think it's a serious danger. Yeah. And it's, uh, it kind of blows my mind. Even like, you know, my friends who are in San Francisco and service industry workers, they're, uh, you know, they have rent control and they've stayed in their, their apartments for 20 years so they can stay in the city and not have to commute, but, mm-hmm. but they can't leave. There's a golden handcuff there. Right. They can't exactly. leave because they make a lot of money uh, now in the service industry but they still have to live in the same apartment. And they, it's. Yeah, crazy. you're right. And that's exactly what it is. The golden handcuff. Cause if they leave, they can't come back. Right. And I did that. I left. I was like, Oh, maybe I'll come back. And I'm like, nah, nah, not going to happen, <laughs> but it's good to get rid of it. It's good to saw. And yet the golden handcuff, those things are tight and strong. So I had to saw my arm off. I had to go at the, I had to go at the wrist. There um, you go. <laughs> it kind of feels like that emotionally because you know sure. San Francisco is just kind of home to me, but Los Angeles is home to me now, and it's just because it's it's just it's easier and more open for creativity. Where there's there's just kind of a now you're you're done here. We don't need you. <laughs> oh, you wait, you wait and see. You'll need me. I don't know. Maybe they maybe they never needed me at all. But um, oh, I doubt that. <laughs> but it was so um, so you, you're 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 working um, as an officer, and when do you start writing? Um, I always wanted to write from a, a fairly young age, and you know, life kind of you know sort of got in the way for a while there because I was an outer borough you know, white ethnic kid. Um, I didn't finish college. I did not have any aptitude for higher education. And so, you know, I followed my family's route into civil service. You know, the, uh, the Irish Holy Trinity is jobs, benefits, pension. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, that's, uh, I, I wound up going to work for the transit authority briefly and uh, then into the court system. And it was probably, I was probably about 10 or 12 years into my career in the courts when I realized if I went back and finished college, nothing changes in my life. I don't get a promotion. I don't get an increase in salary. Nothing occurs except I get this piece of paper. So why, why would I go back and pursue the degree when what I've really wanted to do for those years was to write. So I decided I'll take a shot at writing. And if it doesn't work out, I'll go back and get the degree. You know, then I would have gone and gotten a criminal justice degree or something that might've helped. But 
<clears throat> but I really wanted to try the writing thing first. So um, back in those days, the Village Voice was a, a very big deal. Mm -hmm. And in the back of the Village Voice was an ad for writing, uh, writing workshops at the West Side Y on uh, 62nd and Central Park West. And I signed up for a writing group. And um, I was, you know, I, I tried to blend in with the other 15 people in the class and I tried to copy stories out of the New Yorker. And it was unbelievably just awful. I was terrible at this. Yeah. And one night I just got really frustrated. It was, it was literally the last class. And I got really just, you know, boiling up in frustration over not being able to make any impact. And I told a neighborhood story instead. And the teacher lost her mind. And she was like, this, this is what you should be doing. Why the hell have you been handing me this garbage? Why aren't you doing this? And when class ended that night, we all got up to leave. And she said, do you have a few minutes? And she took me around the corner and bought me a beer in the neighborhood, you know, West Side Bar and said, I want you to start writing a book. And I want it to be like this. I love those stories. I have kind of a similar story myself, too, because um, it, it's you found your voice. Yeah. And well, it's and it's so hard. It. Yeah. It, you found it. But someone pointed it out to you and went, wait a yes. second. You got there. And it's and we have to suck. It's like we have to suck. We have to copy. We have to um, we have to write very problematic, embarrassing stories. And then at some point our voice gets in there, you know, they, your voice doesn't hit it right when you hit it on. Absolutely. Yep. And it, and it's, and it's very uncomfortable. I mean, I, I see my students squirm all the time and I'm just like, Hey, you know, that feeling you have now you're in the right place and that squirming never goes away. <laughs> so, so right. as That's long as you can squirm. Right, it never goes away. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it, and, 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 and it, they just, there's, and then they get comforted by going, oh, wait, I'm like, and I tell them the best-selling authors that I've talked to who still have that same, ah, when they start a new book. So mm -hmm. I'm just like, you're just a right, you're just a writer. So you're just welcome, welcome to the club. It's not going to feel well, but other people will look at us and go, well, that was probably easy to write. You just nod okay. and smile and go, yeah, sure. Whatever. All right. You have a nice day. Sign your name. <laughs> Pretty much. What was, what do you remember the first, was there a time when you felt like you were in danger when you were taking a prisoner from the courthouse to the prison or to jail? Um, so that was a huge smash cut. Like, take it, take a, we were just yeah, talking. Yeah, so, uh, was, you know, take a breath. I, yeah, sure, sure. Lead me down the artistic road for a time or two and then break out the brass knuckles. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You could see, and, and this just probably shows how I have sex with people. We're just like, wait, how did that end up in there? So, there you go. <laughs> um, there were, um, I, I will honestly tell you, there was certainly never a time I feared for my life, but uh, not under, not in that circumstance, but, um, you know, we, there, there were, there were things I was unprepared for as much as I thought I was a fairly savvy, you know, guy, young guy growing up in New York City. And I kind of thought that I knew my way around. Every so often something would happen and I would be like, damn, I am bad at this. I am just green, um, you know, because, <laughs> you know, if, if 
You open up a cell and you tell the guy, get up and turn around, put your hands behind your back. And he says, no. Well, gee whiz, what happens next? Right. You know, um, no is not an option. You know, that that's not an acceptable answer. Right. And so there were times that, you know, you wound up rolling around on the floor with somebody. Um, and I don't think I realized that that was going to be as much a part of the job in the early, in the very, very early years. Um, that, that calmed down pretty quickly. But as things jumped off, when we had, um, when I started, the arraignment courts in Brooklyn were the busiest felony courts on the planet Earth. We were pushing more bodies through there than any other courthouse. And on a Friday, it was something that was called 180-80 day, which was that within six days of arrest, if somebody did not get indicted, they were cut loose. So the DAs were always scrambling for the indictments to come down. But that what that meant for us was that we might have 300 cases on that day and 175 of them would be jails. So you'd have 125 people sitting in the audience and 175 that you had to bring up and down and up and down all day long. And you had to push them out by close of business, um, you know, by law. So you're in the academy and they teach you, make sure that a defendant is rear cuffed. Make sure that you have two officers to every defendant. Make sure that you do this and you do that, and that there's a guy at the elevator and a guy at the gate. And then you get to the job. My fan club. What? What, what kind is that? Those are birds outside. Those are geese. Oh, yeah. oh my god, that's yeah. beautiful. Are those, <laughs> are those are those just kind of wild geese that hang out in your where you live? Wait. They, they just showed up. Yeah. They're Canada geese that are probably on their way back up now that the weather's getting warmer. Right. And they're just, wa- they're just walking now. They're like, all right, we've been flying for a while. Let's just hang out in front of Tim's house. That's it. The word <laughs> has probably gone out. This is a place where, you know, you can catch a meal and a drink. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> a, a good stop. So, so anyway, you get to work and then the first Friday or the second Friday that you work, you wind up in an arraignment part. And what's happening is everyone you work with, the other five or six officers, are giving you their handcuffs and sending you up to the correction floor. And when you get up there, you realize that you have to chain 12 people together, daisy chain them, push them into an elevator, you know, suck in your gut, get into the elevator with them and the door closes. And it's like none of this had anything to do with the academy. Yeah, You know, the academy was we're going to do it by the book. And when you get there you're almost always in crisis mode. And so that was um, a bit of a baptism by fire. And I'd say from like maybe my first year. Yeah. And then the combination of you get a little bit more used to it. And to be perfectly honest, um, th- things did gradually get easier because the crime rate in New York City eventually started to go down, although not significantly till about 1990. Yeah. But that was a hell of a first year. And it was a, uh, a hell of a wake-up call about how um, I wasn't anywhere near as streetwise as I thought I was. Right, right. And then, so after a while, did you like, especially when you ask someone to, you know, when you're like, "We got to get cuffs on you," um, did you did you know like ways to kind of um, engineer where if they said no, you can like de-escalate it before it went to the ground? Kind of did yeah. that take time? Like actually being in that experience, and then you go, "Oh, wait a second, this, this, and this." 
yes. And, and I think, I think you of all people will appreciate that it's like a lot like the rest of your life. It's, it's the way you present yourself and it's how fast you keep things moving. And whenever possible, it's introducing humor. Yeah. And, and, you know, that has been successful in deescalating a number of times, you know, you walk in and somebody says something stupid or something provocative and you say, you know, what do you think, dude? You're the first guy today to talk to me like that. Come on, get up, turn around. I want to get you back in time for lunch. You don't want to miss lunch. Let's go. Let's keep moving. Yeah. And, and once you get the rhythm down, people respond to the rhythm. Yeah. It's, that's, you know, that's like being not to compare it to like stand up comedy, but that is like kind of being on stage and, and, oh, and psychologically. Oh, a good comparison. Yeah. 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 Very much so. One, yeah. one of my favorite, one of my favorite moments of de-escalation had nothing to do with my job. I, I was in a bar one night in uh, Sunset Park with a friend or two, and it was a particularly kind of rough, divey bar in the mid-1980s. And these two guys sort of start to square off, and it certainly looked to me like it was coming to blows. And the one guy turned to the other one and said, you think I'm afraid of you? You? You think I'm afraid of you? Do you know how tough I am? And then he jerks his thumb toward the bartender, the female bar, you know, the barmaid. And he's, I live with her. <laughs> and that was it. It was like a dam broke. The tension is just gone. The two guys are both hysterical. Yeah. And within 15 minutes, they're buying each other drinks. And yeah. I was, that guy's a goddamn genius. Yeah. You know, that was just one of those, you know, spiritual moments of de-escalating violence. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and there's such a beauty to it because they, they, they brought empathy to each other in a way where it's just like, everyone's had a bad relationship. Everyone's it's just like, so immediately they're like, Oh man, we have a lot more in common than I thought. You know, I'll, I got you. Address. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, um, you know, it's, I mean, the people, I guess the humor is so important just in general. I mean, even, you know, even humor in, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm finding humor and absurdity and like the, you know, the trauma I've been through in my life <laughs> where it's just like, to, you know, I just got out of therapy, like I told you earlier. And it's just like, I was, uh, you find some humor in it and you're just like, wow. And, but it's just like, but, but everyone's been through everything. So when we have humor in it, we can kind of, we can come together more, you know? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you're 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 dealing with uh people in and out of jail and you got to sit there and have a stand-up routine <laughs> it's, it's a part of it you know they were yeah. uh, the, the good news is uh from my perspective <clears throat> the years that i did i worked in uniform for a while and then i promoted out of uniform and then i ran the cashier's office for um for the complex for a lot of years for about 20 years and that was being in charge of collecting all the fines, um, surcharges, fees, but also taking bail. And again, the, the good thing is that what I discovered was most of the people I was dealing with were not bad guys. They were mostly life's losers. You know, they were just guys that couldn't get out of their own way. They were, were addled with addiction or they had, you know, perhaps mental health issues, but <clears throat> there were very few 
genuine bad guys. And when you when you met the bad guys, they stuck out because of that. You remembered them. Yeah. And that was that was notable. And there were certainly enough of them. But it wasn't most of my stock in trade. Most of my stock in trade was just trying to help people get through their day. Just just keep it moving. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a, a situation I was telling someone about recently where. Again, a million years ago, um, weed was a much bigger deal, you know, and, and enough, you know, too, too many people, unfortunately, have felony records because of it. I mean, that's yep. a shame, but it is what it is. Yeah. Now and, it's now it's like balm that you put on right, your cheeks. Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. <laughs> um, but, you know, back back in like the late 80s, we had this um, Jamaican, uh, I don't want to say gang, you know, a group of guys that had all gotten busted for felony weight weed and they were all paying you know fairly decent sized fines and you know four or five thousand dollars and there was one really tiny guy with dreadlocks almost you know to his knees and he was he pulled out this wad of bills you know the proverbial choke a horse wad of bills and he was peeling off the money and giving it to each name as we called the name and then the guy would come up and pay his fine and it was my partner and I, <clears throat> and we're taking turns. We're processing them. It's a fair amount of money. We're double counting everything. And we go through the list and then we get to the last name and nobody answers. And uh, I said, you know, I called the name out again. Nobody answers. And I said, you know, guys, you know, where is this guy? You know, he's either going to pay or we're going to issue a warrant for his arrest. And one or two of them chuckle. And I said, well, look, guys, I said, I'm not trying to be a tough guy here, but either he's going to come to us or we're going to go for him. And from the back, I hear somebody say, bring a shovel. And again, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not as tough as I think I am. You know, I'm just going to be polite, take these guys money, tell them have a nice day. Yeah. That's intense. You know, every so often, you know, something like that would come up. Yeah. The, um, and, and then how long were you, because uh, does that mean that you're like, you're dressed in a suit? Is that, is that what that meant? That you're, yeah. Jacket yeah. and tie. Um, yeah. but, but I still had a, a badge and a gun. Yeah. That's kind of cool though. Doesn't everybody like in the, in the police force and stuff, it's like, you want to be the guy in the suit and the tie with the badge and the gun, right? <laughs> well, you, you do after you're not 25 anymore. Yeah. You know, when you get on, when you're 25 years old, it's kind of fun and it's kind of cool. And when you're about 32, you say, yeah, I don't want to roll around on the floor with these guys anymore. Right, right. <laughs> that, this is not fun. Yeah. Uh, it's not what I want to do on a Friday afternoon when I'm getting ready to go home. Yeah. Those dive bars in New York, I don't know if they were similar to what I experienced, you know, in the uh, in San Francisco. But in certain areas, they would bring together kind of everybody of all walks of life. Um, you, you know, we had, there'd be the finance guy, there'd be the, you know, there'd be the crazy guy there. You, you'd see your creative friends in there. There was, and, and that's kind of all gone from San Francisco. Yes. Everything's very, it's like the, if the, if it's a dive bar, it's just, it's the bad drinkers now. <laughs> it's just like, and there's not that many of them, but they, it's not the gathering place that it used to be where everyone yeah, no, from all walks of life would come in and have a beer and kind of come right. together. Yeah. No, that we, we had a, yeah, oh, you, you're so right. We, we had a place um, right behind the courthouse that was a Chinese restaurant 
bar because it was like right at the edge of Little Italy, Chinatown, and just north of the financial district, but where all of the government buildings were. And that was exactly what you're talking about. It felt like, you know, the gathering place for all of these types. You would go in there, you could find DAs, you could find um, defense attorneys, and you could find, you know, a handful of um, old Chinese uh, gamblers, you know, who were, you know, running the card game in the back. Yeah. And it it was this spectacular environment. But yeah. that that sort of magic only lasted for about five or six years, I guess, as the communities were changing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it, it kind of blew my mind as I was like, as I was turning 21 and stepping into these places. And, you know, the only drink I knew how to order, I'd be like, can I get a white Russian? And then all, <laughs> and then all, they'd all, all eyes would come to me and I'd be like, and don't order that drink next time. <laughs> and, then I, and then I was, and then I was like really solid with, I'll get a gin and tonic, you know, <laughs> Like, wait, my voice went down like four octaves after sure. when I was 21 and two and two months old. <laughs> oh man. The um the the uh what do you call it? Yeah, just just the beauty of youth, right? The beauty of uh mm-hmm. the beauty of trying to fit in and then and then getting the um and then we get the we get the we get the social uh the social what do you call it? If you, if you walk into a bar like that and you say something like, I need a white Russian and, and you find out right away, you got to change your tactic. <laughs> I, I remember um, out, here in, out here in Pennsylvania, when we first got the house, walking into the bar up the corner and a friend of mine was with me and he walked in and a friend of his said, are you allowed to smoke in here? And he, he says to the bartender, um, pardon me, ma'am, are you allowed to smoke in here? And she said, I don't care if you dance naked on the bar. <laughs> okay, we've established the bar we've just entered. Now, right. I, now I know the rules. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the rules of every club. It's even the rules of a church, right? You go into the church and you're like, uh, if you're a Catholic, you're like, I, I got to stand up again. You know, you're a Catholic. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How many times do we got to stand up during this? <laughs> So what, so what, uh, what, what borough did you grow up in, in, in New York? Brooklyn. Brooklyn? Like where at in Brooklyn? Um, I was born in Bay Ridge uh-huh. and <clears throat> spent a lot of my growing up years in Bay Ridge. Then I moved uh, downtown and then <clears throat> out to Red Hook for a few years and then back downtown again. And I've been downtown for a very long time. Do you, do you know Brooklyn pretty well? No, not that much, but I, I have a, I kind of know exactly where downtown is. And, um, and the, what happened mm-hmm. when, when I, when I started doing city jobs, it was 1983 and it was when so much of the middle class was leaving the city. You were still part of that whole white flight thing. The murder rate was still on the rise. It didn't really peak until I think it was 1989. And you could you could afford to move downtown. People didn't want to live there. And I was amazed that I could move to a place where I could walk five blocks to my job. It was just astonishing to me. Um, so I did. Yeah. And then years later, when I moved out to Red Hook, which had been my father's old neighborhood where he grew up, that had been an extremely tough neighborhood. And uh, I remember the first night that I 
stayed in my new apartment out there, I was literally the last guy on the bus. And the bus driver kept looking in the mirror and he kept looking back at me and looking back at me. Finally, I pulled the cord on the last stop before he made the turn. And I got up and he said to me, you sure? <laughs> wow. It Because it was a, a, you know, a rough neighborhood. Yeah. But that was still one mile to my job. And back in those days, I was able to have a two-bedroom apartment for $600 a month. And it was a nice building. Yeah. And it was owned by a couple of old hippies. Yeah. You know, they were, they were just this great couple. Yeah. And so we had this little outpost. Um, yeah, I, I I do miss that stuff. I miss the the vibe of, you know, again, like, you know, the old West. Um, I, I would come home from work and park on that block. And there were a pack of wild dogs that would trot around the corner and circle your car. And you had to sit in the car for 10 minutes until the dogs got distracted and trotted off to something else. Back in the days when dog, when you would just see dogs on the street, you don't see that anymore. It's like all these leash laws and everything. You know, it's like when you're a kid, you're just riding your bike. And all of a sudden there's two dogs. Bup, 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 bup. You don't yep. know who it is. It was, there's a beauty to that. There's like, yes. oh. <laughs> it's a certain freedom. Yeah. And then, and there's also, it's just finding your way around rough neighborhoods and how to navigate a rough neighborhood compared to, you know, it's like when I lived in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, it's like you walk very differently than if you're walking in a neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of crime. And also I found that you get really friendly with your neighbors a lot quicker because it's, Hey, how you doing? And sometimes they're like, Hey, what's up? Are you all right? Cause they'll see you with someone. And so there's, there's an immediately, I know that face he's been around here. He's a local. Sure. And, and are you all right? And it's just like, there's a camaraderie that you did that. I, I that's, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to explain to people who have not lived in rough neighborhoods. Uh, yes. Yep. That's exactly true. Yeah. You form a community and you form it fast. Yeah. And then even the people who, you know, even the people who are like, you know, dealing or uh, the pimps and stuff, you start to get to know them. I mean, I, I used to love walking home at night when the, when the, when the uh, pimps were out and the, because I knew nothing was going to go wrong because they were making sure business was being taken care of. So, <laughs> so all of a sudden, when you see uh, all the hookers out, it's just like, yep. Oh, okay. This block's going to be all right. I can walk through it and they, they know I'm here. And <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll, Tell, tell you two stories in, in that vein, um, one, one of which is that, again, because of the job that we did being in the courtrooms and processing arraignments, we literally saw <clears throat> for at least one appearance, anybody that got arrested in, in Brooklyn would come through our, had to come through one of two courtrooms that we had there. So after that, they went to different places, perhaps, but we always saw the initial appearance. And one of the essays that that I wrote in this book is about my experience in the arraignment parts in the early 1980s when they would do the prostitution sweeps and you would, you would get all of these girls brought in when they would do a sweep in some place where there were a ton of streetwalkers like Coney Island was back in the eighties was a huge area for that. And they would, they would do a sweep and bring 30, 40 girls in. And then you would have three or four pimps in the audience and you would have the one or two retained attorneys that always stood up only on the prostitution cases. And you kind of watched how this sort of worked. It became a rhythm that, that you know, this was a, a regular thing. But one night, um, 
I had gone to a retirement party of one of the old timers at the place and three or four of the rest of us at the end of the night drove out to Coney Island to go to Nathan's and get a couple of chili dogs and a beer. And we parked the car and get out of the car. And there were all these street walkers on the corner and they start screaming and running away because they <laughs> don't us from seeing us in uniform in the courthouse. So they thought it was a raid. And we're like, I'm, I'm getting the chili dog. I'm, I'm, it's okay. No, yeah, Susan, yeah. no, it's, don't, no, nobody's looking for you. You know them by their first names and their real names. And you're like, no, 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 come back over here and tell your pimp it's okay because just keep yeah. business as usual. <laughs> I don't want to mess things up. This one's unofficial. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's fun. Yeah. It's it's just it's uh yeah that's so much fun. Coney Island. I've I've never been to Coney Island. I got to go one of the when I get back to New York, I'll go to Coney Island. Definitely, definitely. There's still a little bit of Coney Island left. It's worth seeing. Yeah. That's another, a very go ahead. I'm sorry. Another incident that happened that that made me rethink who we are and the way we the way we conduct this business in the criminal justice system. This guy, I, I won't mention his name, he's still with us. He had a large fine to pay for gambling. And I mean, large meaning maybe, you know, three or four thousand dollars. And he would come in and he would pay it fifty dollars a month. And he used to come in virtually dressed in rags that he looked like he was homeless and he would shuffle in and he would give me the $50 and he would give me some sob story. And I was never um, discourteous to him, but I was always like, yeah, you know, it's okay, pal, you know, you give me a 50 bucks. I'll see you next month. You know, just do, do the best you can hang in there. And he keeps coming and going and coming and going for, you know, got to be, I must have dealt with this guy for two and a half years. And one night I'm in lower Manhattan in little Italy. And I walk into a different kind of bar and I was with someone I worked with, which I was really thrilled because I actually had a witness to this. And I come to the end of, of this, you know, fancy kind of, you know, almost underground joint. And all of a sudden two drinks show up and the bartender says, those are on the house. And I said, they were on the house. And he said, yeah, he says, the gentleman at the end of the bar. I looked down the end of the bar. I don't know this guy. And I said to my friend, I said, do you know him? Maybe he sent them to you. And he said, I don't know that guy. And I take my drink and I walk down the bar. And when I get, you know, within three feet of him, it's the guy that's showing up in rags except now he's sitting there in a thousand dollar suit and he's smiling at me. Whoa. And I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> and he smiled. He enjoyed a drink. I said, thank you. <laughs> and I slunk back to my end of the book. And I'm telling you the next month he shuffled in again in rags. Wow. So he was, he has this front that he had to keep up for the city, for the cops, for the government. And this guy was a made man, as it turns out. Huh. Uh, he was briefly, for what I, I, what I discovered about him was for a brief period of time, he had been John Gotti's driver. Uh-huh. Um, so he, you know, he was a mover and a shaker in this small world. But, you know, to, to the straight world, to the square world, 
he had to appear to be a guy that was practically um, indigent. That's that is amazing, and what what a what a, a interesting way for someone with that type of status to have to show themselves in day by day and just show themselves to everybody that they're a completely different person. Yeah. Wow. And, he, and it, it, there's, there's gotta be some amount of trust with you that where he bought you the drinks. Cause you probably wouldn't have recognized him if. Oh, I, w- I would never have known he was there. I, yeah. I think it was just because I treated him decently. You know, yeah. I, I, I don't even think I was particularly nice to him, but I, I was never uncivil. Right. And doesn't that go a long way? It just, it, it, it's, it, I find it so intriguing when someone looks a certain way or someone presents a certain way and you really kind of start talking to them and you're just like, oh, oh, you know, it's, it, we, it's like, oh, we have a lot in common. You know, people probably say that about me too. They're like, you know, that guy, Tony, he presents himself a certain way, but you start talking to him and like, he knows a couple things. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's a, I guess it's a whole circle of uh, social yeah. cues, right? Sure. Had a fun, fun day at work one day when one of the, the office I worked in was um, three cashiers running cash registers and two supervisors, sort of this L-shaped office. And one of the cashiers is calling out names just for summonses. And all of a sudden says, Tim McLaughlin. <laughs> and I get up and I walk over and, Tim McLaughlin is this really big black guy. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and I said, I pointed to him. I said, Tim McLaughlin. He said, yeah. And then I pointed to myself and I said, Tim McLaughlin. Yeah. And the two of us smiled and we just sort of nodded toward each other. And I said, all right, have a good day. And as I turned around, I said, don't ever kill anybody. <laughs> Last thing I need is somebody looking for a Tim McLaughlin. Right, right. Look, we got each other. We can really screw up each other's reps here. And by the way, if you do murder someone, I'm going to say, I'm going to say Tim McLaughlin's a cop. (laughs) (laughs) The guy's a snitch. I saw him in jail. There you go. Yeah, we got leverage here, man. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, what's it like when you retire from, uh, I mean, it, it sounds like, it sounds like it's so juicy to be in that environment to be you're just what, what what is it like when when you're when you you walk away from it and then you and then that type of um you know i'm i'm sure like most days are kind of like ugh, but there's just that beauty of kind of the what do you call it the um knowing the in, ins and outs of that and being a part of the ins and outs of that and then you're and then you're outside of it and that that's exactly how it feels. And that's exactly what happens. And it happens just about that quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a long time to stop looking at the world that way. Because you looked at it that way for 30 years, 31 years in my case. Yeah. So um, you still, you still sort of see things on the streets a certain way. And you process what you're, you process information a certain way. But over time, that drops off a little bit. Um, but the fun thing for me and the, the, the most rewarding thing for me was that uh, then I got to start writing about it. Yeah. And that was, um, you know, when the, the way this book came together, I didn't, I didn't think of the, of, of the arc, the, the, the arc of this, the storytelling until after there was a manuscript. It hadn't occurred to me because 
a lot of the stuff, I'd, I'd say half, about half the book was written over a period of 20 years, you know, individual stories, individual essays. And I was hanging out with um, the publisher, Johnny Temple of Akashic. I don't know if, do you know Johnny? Yeah, yeah. I love Akashic, yeah. Johnny is wonderful. Yeah. He and I were hanging out after a Nets game. And I said to him, you know, I, you know, I, I don't have enough short stories for a collection. I don't have enough essays for a collection. But if you put the essays and the stories together, it'd make a kind of fun collection because even with the fiction and the nonfiction, it's traveling the same kind of narrative arc of New York City street level storytelling about a world that is, as we speak, slipping away. And he was, God bless him, he said, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that. And then I, I was able to put a manuscript together pretty quickly because I had a lot of this stuff written. And then when I gave it to him, he yanked a few of the pieces. And at the time, I was kind of upset, particularly one piece, because in my entire life, I've written one story for the New York Times. And of course, he yanked that one. And I'm like... I just wanted once in my life to have something in the acknowledgments say, saying, you know, previously published in the New York Times, and now right. you've taken it away from me. <laughs> but he, he was right to do it because it was a little bit too um, lighthearted and um, amiably nostalgic, and mm -hmm. it didn't go with the vibe of the rest of the book. So the, the good news now in retrospect is I had to write new pieces to fill in those holes. Mm -hmm. And so that was when I started to see the, the arc of the storytelling. And, and I was able to, to tailor pieces to fill those gaps. And I was thrilled that I was retired and I was able to like actually, you know, sit around and tell those tales. And, you know, he had asked me at one point, Johnny, if I'd ever thought about doing a memoir. And I realized this is probably the closest I'll ever come to that because it's seven personal essays and they, sort of track my life from, you know, being a little kid, being an altar boy, um, up to retirement. So, you know, at least half the book is, is nonfiction and those kind of tales. And then honestly, the, the fiction is just the stories that you can't report as essays because you can't. So you have to make them fictionalized. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and in fiction, I find that, you know, there's, there's, sometimes even more honesty in fiction because you're hitting the emotional truth. Yes. Yes. That that's true for me too. Um, it, it gives you a, it gives you a freedom to be completely truthful. Yeah. Wait, what do you, what do you enjoy more? What, what's more your vibe is, 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 is do you jam more with, uh, with the essays or with the uh, fiction? Like wh which, know, which one gets you off more as a reader and also as a writer? That, that's really funny. I never considered that before. But the, the, the answer is, I value the fiction more. But the nonfiction, the essays are a lot easier for me to write. I, I, you know, I'd be lying if I said otherwise. Um, I, I can do an essay pretty easily. But the yeah. fiction, you know, you got to wring your soul out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, I, I, I have a very similar thing myself where people have asked me to do memoir and I, and I, I try and I'm just like, 
it's not getting there for me. You know, it's, it's gotta, I, I gotta get to the guts of it and I can't do it with, uh, and you know, and there's great memoirists out there who know how to craft it that way. And I'm, I just, I don't have that little thing in my brain to do it. I have to, I have to fictionalize and, and work with it that way. I don't know why. Yeah. Sometimes it's the only way you can access it. Yeah. Do you remember the name of the, uh, that teacher from the Y that, that pulled you? Oh, are you kidding? Mm-hmm. Her name is Kaylee Jones and she is one of my closest friends and I am her daughter's godfather. No way. Oh yeah. my God. I- We've become very good friends over the years. She, you know, she changed my life. Yeah. You know, she- I, I was a guy who, who literally thought that because I had taken this civil service route and because I did not finish college, that if I could prove to myself that I could write a short story or two short stories, if I could place a story in a small literary magazine, that I would be so incredibly happy and I would feel like I had somehow validated, um, you know, the fact that I could do this. And within two years, she had me writing a novel. Huh. And, uh, you know, she, she rode me hard on that novel and, and she beat a novel out of me yeah. and God bless her. Um, so, you know, she, she's, she's a very important person in my life. And, uh, and, you know, we've been friends for 25 years now. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's just those, those, those lovely moments, those little mentor moments, those little moments of like, Oh, wait. Oh, you know, because writing is, I mean, I just, I, part of me just like laughs at the absurdity of like, why are we doing this? What is the point of this? This doesn't take garbage off the street. This doesn't build roads, <laughs> you know? And then at the same time, I'm reading other like novels and fiction and nonfiction. I'm going, this is changing my life. This has given me a different perspective. This is yeah, more important yeah. than everything. Yes. Yeah. That's how it feels. Um, and I, I will always be very grateful to, to her. And she, she was, she and another old friend of mine who were, who is no longer with us, unfortunately, a guy named Henry Fletch. Um, they brought my books to, uh, to Akashic. They brought my manuscript to Johnny. Yeah. You know, and what a great, and what a great editor to take out. I mean, the, to, to see the arc of your book, and then take out the New York Times piece because I think most editors would be like, we have to keep that in so it's on the public the publicist sheet previously published in the New York Times. But but he's looking at the he's looking at the craft. He's not looking at the pimping of it. Right. And and Johnny will do that ten times out of ten. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what that's 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 why I have so much joy with publishers like Akashic. You know, it's just like. Oh man, it's the reason that I'm still in this game. <laughs> yep. It's just, yeah. it, it, it's just, there's just beautiful, there's beauty to people who, who, especially in, you know, in his, uh, in his world and what they've done over there, where it's just like, it's still, there's still that love for it. They know they didn't, they didn't get jaded. They still no, kept the it, vision. That is pretty amazing. It's probably 25 years now. And I think they all get up every day tremendously excited about what they might find today yeah what might come across that desk yeah and, and that is rare yeah 
what was it like when your when your first novel was published? What 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 did it what did it what was what was the feeling when that came out? Oh my God, are you kidding? <laughs> I was out of my mind. I tore. I, I back then Akashic's offices were on the second floor of a garage at the edge of Bed Stuy, and uh, when he told me the books were back from the printer, I raced over there. And he, he cut a carton of books open and I stuck my face into it like it was cocaine. <laughs> and, I, and I just, I smelled the books. I was like out of my mind with happiness. Yeah. Um, I, I was crazy happy. Uh, I, I, it, was, it was a pretty amazing experience uh, for me having barely published anything. I think I had published two short stories in literary magazines and then the book came out and um, we got picked for um, the Barnes and Noble Discover series. And uh, it got, you know, it got reviewed in Entertainment Weekly. It got reviewed in Penthouse Magazine, which gave me a reason to go buy it. Doesn't get any better than that. I was not only able to buy it, I was able to show it to people. Yeah. So it was all, it was all so much fun. I, I've uh, written two, uh, two different two page profiles on authors for uh, penthouse. And, um, and the, the, my, one of my favorite parts of it was calling my mom up in San Francisco and going, I'm in penthouse and you got to go buy this. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I swear my son's a writer and, and it's not me. And they're like, yeah, whatever lady. <laughs> Oh, what a great, yeah, great review. But what it, what a, also, I just, I, I just got to take away like, and the moral of the story is as for this episode is co- college, you know, some people need to go to college and get their master's or whatever to become, to get to finish their novels and get into the publishing world, which is a great way to go. And another way to go is to just do it too. And, you know, it's, there's no right way to do it. There's no wrong way to do it, but it can be done without dropping tons of money and just putting in the work yeah well and it and it's done when it's right for you when the time is right um Mm -hmm. for me had i gone directly into you know finished college and gone to grad school i don't know that it would have uh worked out that way obviously the geese feel differently yeah yeah we have we have a rebuttal outside yeah yeah (laughs) but for for me it had you know i had to have like 10 years of of um blue collar jobs under my belt before I woke up and said, you know, I want to do something that means something to me. Yeah. Um, I, I think I have a story to tell that I haven't heard about. Yet. I haven't yeah. read it. I heard somebody else tell this story and I want to tell it. You know, I don't know a lot, but I know my little corner of the universe. Wonderful. Tim, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Tony. It's been a blast. Tim LaGlocklin on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Stories and essays out now on Akashic Books. Keep reading, keep keep writing, keep crafting the stories of our lives. I'll see you next week.
Listening to 101.9 FM KPCR LP Santa Cruz.